Hi, my name is Graham Trigg. I'm Head of Client Services here at Hemptons and welcome back to the second part of a double podcast with Stephen Hooper. Stephen's uh, an associate in our London office as part of the Regulator in Crime team. Hi Stephen, how are you? I'm Since the five minutes since uh, that we last spoke, I'm, I'm absolutely fine. Uh, it seems like no time <laughs> at all, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does, yeah. The things you can get away with when you're cutting one podcast into two, I don't know. Let's move yeah. on, let's move on. <laughs> Clearly, medical regulation, we need to start with GMC. How have they approached their role in, in, in these, what can only be described as uniquely challenging times? Well, it's fair to say they, they reacted quickly in, in issuing guidance. Um, I mean, the, the, the level of clarity that we've received in that guidance is, you know, perhaps not as fine-tuned as, as some medics would like, but but ultimately they have, they have moved very quickly to issue guidance that's designed to reassure doctors that in these incredibly difficult times, they're going to be open-minded and everyone recognizes the extraordinarily difficult um, situation uh, that we're all uh, trying to work in. And so what they were very clear in, uh, to, to, to get out right at the beginning in, in conjunction with the other regulators was, uh, uh, so as in all the health and care regulators made the same statement at the beginning of March. Um, the message coming out was very much um, use your judgment, uh, use your own judgment. We will leave you to assess the situation, um, to assess the risk uh, and to deliver care informed uh, by your appreciation of the situation in front of you. Um, and, you know, the, there was a quote from, there was an article um, sent out by the, the, the chair of the GMC, Dame Claire Marks, where she acknowledged that the situation we're in will require the regulator to be flexible. Um, and that uh, I'm just reading from it here. And it says, in this national emergency, that means taking a measured approach to varying standards as the situation demands uh, in the peak of the outbreak. Uh, that could include departing significantly from established procedures, but in very much the same way as uh, we were talking about with, with, with dentists, the actual clarity of thought in terms of what the significant departure should be. Um, well, the, that clarity isn't isn't really there uh, at the moment. So they have issued lots of guidance. There's a, a plethora of information out there, but unfortunately, it's, it does seem that there's still quite a few gaps in knowledge. That I suspect are going to have to be filled yeah. by working examples, by people actually potting their way through it and seeing what gets picked up and doesn't. Sure. At the end of the day, there are going to be a lot of people outside of their comfort zone for quite a lot of the time in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, well, absolutely. And you know, some of the expression that's been banded about is asking people to step outside their comfort zone, you know, to, 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 to practice in a way and in a setting, uh, and perhaps even with people that you're not used to, to working with. Um, and ultimately, what they're asking you to try and do is to decide what the safest and best course of action is. And they, they have given a framework, and I've got some bullet points in front of me here that they talk about you needing to um, have in mind when you're making your decisions. And ultimately, it's about a lot, to... a lot of scope there. A lot of scope there's, for interpretation. There's a huge amount of, uh, a huge scope for interpretation there. But ultimately, what they're saying is, you look at yourself, look inwardly and um, 
work out that you know best what your the scope of your knowledge and skills is and so you're the best person to assess how you can use those existing skills in a different setting so how could i put what i know to good use in you know uh, in, in a different uh, scenario to what i'm used to uh, and as part of that you go speak to your colleagues seek advice from from uh, senior and or even more junior colleagues who might be more experienced at certain things uh, than you are uh, a working example is a friend of mine who's a uh, uh, um, uh, she's a critical care nurse and she is uh, sorry an intensive care nurse rather uh, and you know she's trained in in using ventilators so she as a very senior nurse it's fair to say she's been in practice for for best part of 20 years now she's training anaesthetists about how to use the ventilators anaesthetists who don't necessarily know how to use yeah. them so it's about imparting knowledge and absorbing knowledge uh, and then as a team try to work out where your skills are best used and where other members of the team might be best placed to step in and you seek appropriate training if you're uh, not clear about what you uh, are going to be doing uh, and you know that might be online training it might be having a session um i know for example there are hospitals outside of london uh where the yeah the demand uh, and the number of um, covid patients hasn't been quite so large where they've been spending a lot of time preparing for the surge and getting training uh, and getting people in in a room together to try and prepare for the spike if and when it happens um and but a real real key message is seek advice seek support don't just jump in with both feet by all means make yourself available and of course you know it's been widely acknowledged around the country that the willingness of healthcare workers to get involved and put themselves at risk has been absolutely astonishing and the whole country is you know you've seen all the you know if the most we can do is is clap and bang our pots and pans together and we'll continue to do that yeah. but at the same time don't overstretch yourself you know be prepared to to recognize when it might be better for someone else to be doing the task in front of you because you don't have that skill set um, because ultimately you are there to treat a patient and if you can't do that safely then you're putting yourself and the patient at risk and so um you should really just make sure you try to maintain a balanced view about it and i guess making sure in advance thinking in advance about you know who you need to go to for support and advice when yeah exactly yeah absolutely and of course there are a lot there are various obviously different institutions are going to have different levels of support and different you know hospitals are better and worse than others and different managers are more and less supportive that's not unique to medicine that's through all works of all walks of life some people are better teachers than others and some people are more supportive than others but you you need to identify where your source of support is and if it's not within your hospital then look externally you know uh, you have defense organizations you have lawyers you have you know um other people that you can speak to uh, but it is really important for your own benefit as well as that of your patients just to make sure that you know you, you seek advice and support before you you know, delve into the unknown absolutely so what have the gmc said about this because presumably they can't apply the same standards can they given that there's an acceptance that people are going to be outside their comfort zone and we are in a unique situation have they have they changed their approach in any way you mean in terms of what they're prepared what they're going to be 
regulating for a better word in terms of what they're going to be yeah in terms of the standards they expect and and when when they're looking at what might what may or may not have happened sure i mean i wouldn't say that they 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 haven't they won't have lowered their standards but what they are going to be doing is um uh keeping more of an open mind about uh you know the circumstances of um uh, the situation uh, that the doctor has uh, found themselves in. So uh, they're, they're going to look at the wider picture. Uh, and if, um, you know, something has happened, uh, but it's as a result of um, a doctor working in a higher stress situation and whatnot, then that will be taken into consideration. Um, you know, they'll think about what resources were available to the doctor, the fact that you're working maybe in an unfamiliar area of practice, and the fact that you're stressed and you're tired. Yeah. They'll take that into into consideration. But obviously, what they not done because frankly, they they can't. They can't. You can't issue one guidance document that applies to every situation for every type of doctor in in the country. What they can't do is say this is behaviour that we'll tolerate. This is behaviour that we won't. Ultimately, there they will allow room for clinical judgment um within reason um and certainly they're what they're trying to get across is look we're not we're not here to try and give you a hard time we want to let you help we yeah. want to let you do your day job um and you know as much as they're still cautioning look, we will investigate we will process complaints if we need to we're not going to be coming down on you like a ton of bricks um, at every turn so just be cautious but also be reassured that we're not here to try and catch you it sounds like a, a sensible, practical message generally, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah. So what about um, one, one thing that's intrigued me, I, I guess, as, as, a, as a lay person looking on as this is unfolding is the role that we're beginning to see for doctors in training and, and medical students really being thrown into what may not be appropriate to so the deep end, but... Yeah, it's going to be a hell of, hell of an introduction for medical students, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, it, it, it's fair to say, you know, obviously that there has been talk about medical students needing to step up to the plate sooner than they would. But what they're not going to be doing, just to be clear, is they're not going to be asking a med student to practice as a fully qualified doctor because that would be unsafe for everyone. Um, so what they say is that med students who put their hands up and volunteer to to, to work need to have the permission of their medical school ultimately. And so the medical school will make a judgment about whether or not this is a person who should be doing whatever it is that this person wants to do. Uh, and they'll be making sure that whatever role they're taking on is appropriate to that individual's yeah. level of competency and that they're only undertaking tasks that they can competently perform. And they're, they're very clear as well to say that they should only, med students should only be undertaking tasks uh, which don't require registration. So in, in a sense, you know, you can expect them to be going in and working as healthcare assistants effectively, um, yeah. as opposed to they're not going to be prescribing, they're not going to be, uh, you know, um, performing surgery and whatever. But uh, but they but you're absolutely right; they are going to be thrown into the deep end in a way that they weren't expecting to and wouldn't normally happen. Uh, and then you mentioned also doctors in training; obviously, yeah. they're in a different situation because they yeah. are qualified doctors and they are expected to treat patients. Um, so ultimately, it's the same overarching generic advice that you can you can do the work uh provided you've got appropriate induction uh, and um 
and clinical supervision. So as long as you as long as you are being watched over, uh, and you know the, the work you're undertaking is within your skill set, then get involved. Yeah. Sure. Okay. And at, at the other end of the spectrum, we've got an army of um, retired uh, doctors <laughs> returning to the fold. Tragically, yeah. some of whom have given absolutely everything uh, and lost their lives um, yeah. as, as this unfolds. Um, what, what's 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 the position with with with, with the returning practitioners? Well, the GMC has been given powers to to uh, to recall uh, doctors who have left the register, um, but not all of them. Um, so there there are some restrictions on that. So it's anyone who's left the register uh, since March 2014, because what they don't want, obviously, people who've been out of practice for 10, 20 years and really yeah. don't know what they're doing yeah. anymore. And, you know, and, and uh, by virtue, likely if they're 10, 20 years out of practice, then they're probably quite old now and it wouldn't be safe for them no. to, to go back into practice. Uh, and then you've got other categories of doctors who have stopped working, so they don't have a license to practice anymore because they've not renewed that, but they still have registration. Those doctors can be brought back into the fold um, and, um, and allowed to work. But as I think I mentioned earlier on, what they're not talking about is having a blanket you know, uh, return. So a doctor who was removed from the register is not going to be in their list of suitable practitioners. So if there are people who've got ongoing fitness to practice investigations or if there's some sort of sanction imposed, um, they're not really the doctors they're talking about. They're talking about people with a clean bill of health, for, if you mind the expression. So people who don't have any restrictions on their registration, no outstanding or ongoing fitness to practice issues, they're the ones who are being invited uh, to, to return and actually it's an opt-out scheme so they're, they're they're contacting all of these all of these doctors and saying we are re-registering you um, doctors have the right to opt out they don't have to be involved in it but you do need to actively opt out so it's really important to yeah. check your emails check your posts you know um, to see if something's coming from the GMC because if it has they will be expecting you to return to work if they've deemed you suitable for the task, unless you tell them you don't want to. But the, the guidance has seemed to be suggested if you genuinely say you don't want to be involved, they will respect that. Um, they won't compel people to return. It's not a, it's not a conscription service. Um, so um, so yeah, that's 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 what they've been doing um, to try and bolster the numbers. And of course, there's been talked about quite a lot. There's been a huge um, number of doctors who have returned to the fold. Yeah. yeah. And again, classic lawyers territory. How does the indemnity situation work with with, uh, with these these doctors returning to work? Um, yeah, well, very much like uh, when we talk about with, with dentists, you know, they've made clear that anyone who comes back in to practice um, will have the benefit of the clinical negligence scheme for trusts, which is mm -hmm. the uh, NHS resolution side of things, so they'll have state in state indemnity, state-backed indemnity um, for any um, claims, any ne clinical negligence claims arising uh, from the work. But just to be clear, that's arising from NHS activities in responding to the coronavirus. Um, so if you've got some doctor who's come out of practice and then has just gone in to do some cosmetic surgery, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people coming out of practice to go and help with the coronavirus um, outbreak. And at the same time, the, um, the three big 
medical defense organizations, the MDU, the MPS, and the MDDUS, they've all confirmed that they'll provide, it's not retrospective cover, it's effectively, it's, it's renewed cover. So anyone who was once a member who within certain restrictions, so for example, the MDDUS is limiting it to people who uh, were, it was within the last three years that they um, relinquished their membership, they, they've been given free cover. Uh, and the idea is for that to cover the regulatory side of things. So state-backed cover for any mm -hmm. clinical negligence claims and the MDOs, if you're a member of one of them, providing um, medical legal advice, representation for any regulatory issues and things like that. And of course, there are some doctors who weren't members of any of those three because, of course, there are other uh, indemnifiers out there. You'd need to go and check to see whether or not you have adequate adequate cover in place. It's really important mm -hmm. before you get back into work that, um, yes, you'll have state state uh, cover if you um, are sued for something that goes wrong, but you need to make sure that if it's available to you, you have the cover for any kind of regulatory issues that come up as well. Yeah, that, well, that makes, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Now, so the indemnity providers presumably are setting parameters they are. Of their own. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's their their financial stability at stake here, isn't it? So, what what have they had to say? Well, they've all they've all issued their own guidance. Um, and obviously, I don't think we've really got time to go through uh, in this discussion the individual details of what they've all said. So, if you're a member of one of those three, then go and check. The guidance is very clearly set out for all three of them. It's, they've all done it in a sort of FAQ kind of um, format. Um, and it's it's quite clear what they will and won't cover, and and within that they also give some some tips about returning to practice and how to mm -hmm. cover your own back effectively. So it is yeah. it is a quite um quite a quite a useful read, uh, even if you're not a member of those three as well. Go and have a look at them and see what what information you can get. But really, what they are broadly all giving the same advice, even if the individual. Um, you know, the, the sort of breadth of cover, you know, I mentioned the MDDUS saying three years, the MDU and the MPS might have different kind of um, brackets of, in terms of time. But what they're all advising you to do is practice within your area of competence, you know, don't, don't and, and again, it's very much consistent with the GDC's, sorry, the GMC's guidance. You know, if you're not sure, if you're moving into something that you're not familiar with, seek guidance and training before you go beyond your usual range of capabilities. Make sure that you are covered. I've already mentioned that, you know, make sure that the work you're going to do, you have indemnity cover in place for it. It's a really important requirement. Uh, make sure that you cover your own back um, and don't let your eagerness to help put you at risk because what we can't rule out is even with all the goodwill in the country and the fact that everyone is in absolute awe of the NHS at the moment and so they should be, that doesn't mean that no one is going to complain if they're not happy with the treatment they receive. The reality is people in hospital settings are going to be dissatisfied with the treatment they receive at times. It's inevitable, particularly yeah. when everyone is highly stressed. And so, yeah, and, and even, and that's cascading on from that, even with the GMC side of things, even though they're saying we're going to be sympathetic to the situation, that doesn't mean they're going to let everything slide, no. you know, and you need to be able to justify your clinical decision making. So if you've done something, you've recorded what you've done, you've decided to treat patients and not treat patient, whatever, um, you need to make sure that you can justify what you've done. Uh, and if you can't, there is, of course, a risk that you're going to be investigated for it and potentially sanctioned for it. So just be cautious as you always were, even if you're 
uh, everyone's recognizing that we're all in very unusual times. And then, so the final tip again, all of the MDOs are, are issuing, and it's not anything new, your record keeping, keep Absolutely. it up to scratch, you know, make a contemporaneous note. Apart from anything else, if you're going into a situation where you are seeing an unusually high number of patients, you know, it's so important, even though it's time consuming, you rush off your feet, that you make a point of recording your thought processes, your treatment plans, your discussions, your consent with patients, et cetera, et cetera. And particularly, for example, if you are deciding not to treat a patient yeah. and you are having to explain to them why they can't be treated now, you know, there's been much publicity about, for example, cancer patients having to defer their patient, their, their treatment. If you need to explain to a patient why they need to wait, and why they, you need to prioritize someone's treatment over theirs, then you you really need to make sure that you've recorded clearly why you made that decision. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So in amongst all of this, normal service still resumes in other parts of the regulatory world. Uh, what have GMC said about all sort of the business as usual things like Revalidation, for example. Uh, well, revalidation is fairly straightforward. Basically, anything, anyone who is going to have revalidation taking place uh, before 30th of September this year has been bumped off for a year. So that won't happen. Presumably, that means anything from the 1st of October, if you were due to have your revalidation, then that will continue as planned. Obviously, in the hope that by the time we get to October, um, that you know things have returned to normal and, yeah. and, and we can go about our business. Um, and then the uh, the other thing that there's, if you look on the GMC's website, there's a sort of um, there's a, a page just dealing with status, um, and it, it in bullet point form um, goes through uh, various different things. But the, t the two that I picked out of interest were revalidation and the PLAB tests, which are the tests that foreign trained doctors um, go through to to confirm that they've got adequate uh, English language skills before they start treating. And there are two stages to it. Um, there's a sort of Q&A, uh, sorry, Q&A, uh, um, um, multiple choice question kind of yeah. uh, paper-based uh, part one. That's continuing as normal because it presumably can be done remotely. But yeah. part two, which involves OSCEs, which are the simulated um, clinical um, situations and obviously involve more face-to-face -face contact. They're cancelled if they were due to happen um, between now and the 30th of June. Um, and then that's obviously going to be under under review. Um, so that's obviously a barrier to foreign trained doctors who, for example, have already moved to the UK and were looking to go into practice once they've passed their PLAB exams, obviously. Yeah they need to have those exams passed before they can be fully registered. Um, but that is uh, something that's not going to happen, at least for uh, until July. There's no sign you think that that will be changed if, um, if it... As, as with all of, as with all of it, everything's under review. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it just, I think in the, uh, the reality it, it is likely to be that we're still going to be quite tightly restricted in our movements bet between now and July. It's July's only three months away. You know, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's 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 it might seem like an age but in terms of this pandemic i think everyone's seems to be coming around to the, the notion that we're going to be in uh, in lockdown or maybe not as extensively as we are now but we're not going to be roaming the streets uh, anytime soon no no that's for sure so um that's revalidations um what about fitness practice investigations how how is how's that going to be dealt with 
Well, they're, they're trying to keep things moving. You, you yeah. said business as, as usual. Yeah. Um, it's not quite as bit more business as unusual, but it's um, <laughs> so there are some things that, that are going to carry on. And it, in, in a nutshell, what they're saying is that things that can be dealt with remotely through correspondence uh, and you know, through um, video and, and such like, that kind of stuff will carry on. But anything that involves personal attendance is going to be postponed. So ultimately what that means is the medical practitioner tribunals, hearings, the full public hearings, if the trials, if you want to call them that, where you have all the witnesses turn up, give evidence, you have multiple lawyers, you've got the three to five panelists considering the case. Um, those any any hearings of that nature that are in the diary between now and the sixth of July have been postponed. Um, so I, I had a hearing that was supposed to be starting on the twenty seventh of June or something like that. That's been bumped off until further notice. Um, the suggestion is that in early May they're going to start contacting parties to try and look to relist hearing dates but that's very much under review obviously we'll have to see whether or not there's any point in having those discussions in may because it may be that nothing has changed and we still don't know when we're going to be allowed to leave the house um and so because of that individual hearings the gmc is not able to tell individuals when their hearing is going to be relisted it's going to be have to see how things are in a few weeks time uh, and see whether or not we can get things um uh moving again but that's the, the the chunky substantive hearings that need to have face-to-face -face attendance because just logistically it won't work by video. Um, but very much like the GDC we were talking about before, the the one-day review hearings. Um, so the, the so the uh, so for example, the doctor who's having a review hearing after um, an MPT hearing where they've had conditions imposed for nine months, they'll still have their review room because that can be done remotely via Skype for business yeah. um, with you know the chair and you know, the lawyers attending. Um, by Skype for Business without needing to be in a room together. It's they're usually quite paper heavy in in the sense that the the decisions are made by reading documents rather than calling live evidence. So there's no not such a need to have people in the room. And then the same applies for in the interim orders tribunals. And those are the sort of risk assessment hearings, you know, where you might have at the beginning uh, of an investigation, they convene one of these hearings to decide whether or not while they're conducting their main investigation, they need to put some sort of restrictions on the practitioner's registration to manage a perceived immediate risk to patients. Mm -hmm. Those kind of hearings will still go ahead in very much the same way as review hearings um, because uh, they can and they should continue um, uh, while uh, while we're still in, in lockdown. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's it. So all by, all by Skype for business uh, is the idea. Um, so uh, obviously it's something that a lot of people uh, are familiar with but an equal number probably aren't um, mm -hmm. and so they send out they've got some fairly clearly defined guidance that's available on their website that they'll send out to people in advance of hearings so they understand how it all works and how they participate how they drop out how they contribute and and all that kind of stuff so that's that's really what they're going to be doing um, with the hearings yeah um, but then you have the investigations in the background yeah. as well yeah. um, where uh, obviously you've got some cases which are a bit further you know, sort of not not so far down the line and we haven't had any decisions about making hearings of course that's all largely done in correspondence and so even pandemic aside we'd be dealing with those things in letter writing anyway so the idea is that those investigations will continue so there is a suggestion that unless there is a compelling reason why it can't and it needs to be paused it will continue so if you've got a deadline for submitting some sort of written response 
that deadline would you know may well stay in place um and they're still going to consider new complaints the portal you know there's sort of the, the page on their website whereby people can raise concerns about doctors that's still active that's still accessible um and people are still able to to use that so they'll continue to consider those they'll consider continue to work out whether or not they need to convene those interim orders tribunals to uh, to step in and, and impose restrictions they'll still continue with review hearings um and they'll deal with things like the high court applications that need to be dealt with from time to time to get uh, mm. extensions of time and things like that so basically anything that can be dealt with without everyone needing to be in the room will be dealt with um uh, and so that's really it's really just the substantive hearings that are being bumped off and otherwise they're going to try to have business as usual but at the same time they're recognizing that because of the unusual circumstances because of everyone having to work from home because people uh, being off sick uh, and the difficulty with contacting uh, witnesses and and the fact that of course gmc investigations by definition involve doctors who are yeah. quite busy at the moment yeah. it means that, that things might take longer than they use than they usually do um and and what they've said they've effectively accepted the gmc that it means that some cases won't progress efficiently or at all uh, and but if there is some sort of delay you should at least um get an update from the court confirming sorry the court uh, from the GD gmc confirming that your case is on hold and there's been some sort of delay so they'll try to keep you in the loop uh rather than just mm. leaving things hanging whether or not that actually happens is a different matter because it's not unusual to hear nothing from the gmc for months uh, at the best of times yeah okay so just changing tack slightly then um one thing that that intrigued me the other day um was the news coming out of south end now we know that um PPE is a massive, massive logistical challenge for for the government, and there is uh, a degree of frustration throughout um, the, the the NHS that that and and in social care that that mm. there's just not enough of it coming. And we saw in South End signs that there are teams of doctors and nurses who are beginning to say, you know what without the right PPE in place, we need to restrict what we can do for people. Sure. And that's that's a that's a big ethical call, isn't it? It is. Uh, and at the same time the, the you know the, the, the regulators and I think the whole country is sympathetic with the idea that, you know, healthcare workers might be might be superheroes in our eyes, but they are first and foremost human beings Absolutely. and therefore they're as every bit as uh, at risk of catching the, the virus and of course, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that um, uh, doctor who came out of retirement and passed away. I can't remember if it was yesterday or the day before, but it was certainly this week, you know, who came out, got himself involved, threw himself into it, contracted the virus and died. And, you know, mm. that, that that really highlights, as you know, Michael Gove was at pains to uh, to emphasize the other day that the, the, this virus doesn't discriminate. And whereas his healthcare you know, workers are as prone to catch it as, as, as anyone else. And so people are sympathetic to the idea that if you don't have adequate uh, protection in place, then you should have the right to say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to get involved. Um, and, you know, what the GMC said, they've accepted that difficult decisions may need to be made is what, what they've yeah. said. And that's obviously, it's not just about the, uh, the lack of numbers of PPE kit. It's about also whether or not what's being provided is actually 
adequate you know I, you know so that so i think if you're being given safety equipment that isn't actually going to help you um then i think you're within your rights to say oh, I'm, I'm not going to treat any patients until um i've got that in place because i'm at risk and the, the interest in the, B, the bma issued some guidance and of course it is just guidance but ultimately it's a, it's a view worth bearing in mind and i'll just read it out here so that there are limits to the risk you can be expected to expose yourself to you're not under a binding obligation to provide high-risk services where your employer does not provide appropriate safety and protection. You can refuse to treat patients if your PPE is inadequate. You're at high risk of infection and there's no other way of delivering the care, although that last bit is quite important. Because, of course, yeah. if it is possible for you to deliver the care without exposing yourself to the risk and without the you know, with the absence of PPE, then, of course, that, that patient should still be your priority and you should do what you can to work within the, the the difficult circumstances you're facing yeah and i guess the other major major ethical issue is the one that no no doctor wants to have to deal with but ultimately mm. it happens and it is going to happen a lot in the coming weeks is allocation of resources and prioritizing treatment yeah well, it's again. It's, it's it must be just so unbearably difficult, and yeah. you know, having um, patients come in where you're then effectively saying, "Look, I need to prioritise this one over over you." And I, I gave the example earlier on of, of cancer patients being told that their treatment's going to have to be delayed. I mean, just the most horrific situation for any oncologist or surgeon, whoever it is, to have to be in to say, "Look, we're going to have to delay your your chemo, your your even your scans, your surgery," because it's not urgent and of course you've got people you know fighting a a, a life-threatening illness um but ultimately we are in uh, in, in incredibly difficult we're in a war you know as uh, as has been has been said and so the guidance that they're that you that they've the gds the gmc's given is you know to again it's quite broad it's just take a take account of the national um and local policies you know and Take account of the patient's wishes and expectations. You know, look at the whole situation. But ultimately, you are the person uh, who needs to make the judgment call about what can and can't be provided, what's urgent and what's not, what's safe and what's not. And as long as you are having a full frank discussion with the patient, explain yourself, explain your decision making. Why, if you're telling them it's going to have to wait, explain it to them. People. Mm you know, um, may not be happy to hear it, but also they're going to be an equal number of people who are sympathetic to what's going on in the whole world. It's not just here, you know, And uh, but uh, be open and frank, explain yourself, be calm, be compassionate uh, and keep a record of your discussions, you know, just, um, you know, because of course, these are the kind of situations that may give rise to complaint later. And if you're having to postpone or prioritize one patient's treatment over another, you need to be able to explain why you did that. Um, you know, and at the same time, try to do what you can. I mentioned it before, that, you know, if there's some way around the situation, then do what you can. Is there some way that we can at least alleviate your pain? Uh, is there some, can we give you some painkillers? Can we do something um, to at least kind of put a stopgap in place? If that's possible to achieve, then then you should try to do that. Um, but but ultimately the GMC is, is is effectively saying look in these situations as long as you can justify what you're um, doing and as long as you can explain why you've made those decisions 
you know they understand um that's that we're in difficult times and they're not they don't want doctors to be worried that they're going to come in for undue and unreasonable criticism just because they had to make a difficult decision in entirely unprecedented situations and i mentioned before they'll take into account your circumstances you know what resources you had available uh, to you you know you being completely uncharted territory and, and and the fact that you're under a lot an enormous amount of pressure they'll try to be sympathetic to that if if they can but again it's still kind of very generic advice no specific guidance but in fairness to the gmc it's not that easy to provide specific yeah. advice to deal with which patients should be prioritized so there are millions of people in this country with all kinds of different uh, you know um treatment needs um and uh, it's it's a very difficult situation indeed but sympathy is apparently there yeah which is good you know that's it's great to hear and uh, i think it, everything i've heard from you today seems to suggest that a sensible fair and reasonable approach is being taken here which it which you know is absolutely paramount isn't it for for all of us in all areas of of our lives at the moment fairness and a, and a sensible approach to dealing with this stuff that we're all having to cope with it, it yeah. is paramount one um, one organization we've not mentioned uh yet today it, it is nice uh, yeah have they issued any 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 guidelines or is, is there anything any overlay from them that we need to be bearing in mind here they have um they've issued some guidance uh, about critical care um because obviously and, and the idea is that they are going to churn out more guidance as i understand it so to deal with different situations um because obviously you know, doctors in trying to make those clinical judgments have historically been guided by by nice and to have a, a clear framework um where you can show that you followed the the, the, the thought process set out by by nice for example will give you that sense of protection that look I followed the national guidance about how to deal with this situation. So the guidance I found uh, was uh, from a few days ago from the back end of last week. Um, and it's it, it's a flow chart. It's on the, there's no point in me trying to go through it and actually it's quite mm -hmm. detailed, but um, but there is a there is a flow chart they're dealing with how you assess patients' frailty, for example, how you um, work out whether or not they need critical care or not, uh, whether or not they um, should be referred from one place to another and things like that. And so there is guidance out there and the idea is that it's going to be updated. They are, they are working to get the information out um, for healthcare practitioners as quickly as they can. Yeah, and that's the flowchart that's presumably on, on, on the NICE website. Um, and well, I'm looking at exactly. It. Yeah, I'm looking exactly. at the last update, 27th of March. So presumably that, that may well be a... A living, breathing flowchart in its own right. I'd like to look at exactly. It. So. Yeah, so it's yeah. worth having a look. Okay. Right. Well, we've been talking for just about half an hour now, Stephen. I think that's probably uh, we're probably coming to the end of um, our slot. Uh, I just really wanted to ask you. You know, we've talked about a lot, a lot in, in the last half an hour. I just really wanted to ask you. You know, to sum up, what do what would you like the, the key sort of take home messages? to be in terms of medical regulatory situations as, as we go to the next two months next few months yeah well i think that i think that the the main thing is just to don't don't overstretch yourself i think that's the the the, the real message everyone everyone including the regulators um is sympathetic to the incredibly difficult job um being faced by healthcare practitioners of various disciplines around the country 
uh, and everyone's in the, the, the admiration for for those in the cold face is unparalleled and if, if any if the one silver lining from uh from this horrific situation is it's made people truly appreciate how magnificent the nhs actually Absolutely. is and then that's a then that is then that's obviously a positive um, but against that background you still need to be cautious you know don't overstretch yourself you know the limits of your competence um so if someone is asking you to push yourself too far pause stop tell them i don't think i'm comfortable doing that take advice from seniors from senior colleagues from your supervisors contact your defense organization contact a lawyer if you think it's a medical legal issue you know that sort of thing read the guidance that's available to you like i've just mentioned the nice guidance look is there some sort of framework that i can follow so you know don't overstretch yourself seek advice in advance and that's not just in you know, that's advice i would give to people even with the, without the pandemic going yeah. on it's always it's very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle yeah. um you know and so it's always better to try and make sure that you have given yourself some reassurance before you jump in uh you know feet first uh and for that for that reason just try to keep on top of of the guidance you know um we have a covid19 port portal on the hemson's website actually that um has tried to distill what is quite dense material sure. into into you know bite-sized chunks that they're easy to follow and to give you links to the various different places there's a lot of information out there it's not that easy to to try and see the wood for the trees sometimes but i think we've done quite a nice job of of you know sort of truncating it to make it a bit easier to to, to follow but just you know look after yourselves you know don't don't over push don't push your limits too far uh, and remember that there is support out there don't be afraid to to use it it's uh, the, the the sort of real message i think people need to take home stephen thanks very much for your time that's been incredibly interesting and i hope very very useful for everybody listening to this podcast I should just point out that Stephen's telephone number, if you need to contact him, is 020-74-847568. Stephen's email address is s.hooper at hempsons.co.uk. And if you want to follow Stephen on Twitter, it's at hooper underscore Stephen, Stephen with a PH. So please do uh, jump onto Twitter and follow him. All that remains for me to say thanks very much for listening to the Hempsons Health and Social Care Law podcast. Next time we're going to have Michael Rourke on the subject of contracting in crisis. See you again soon.